I'm Richard Hollingham, and this time in the Planet Earth podcast, can genetics save the ash tree? And the challenge of getting oil out of algae. Even in a, a very good system in 10 litres, you'd be lucky if you got more than 2 or 3 grams of oil. So you can see the problem. There is a lot, there is a lot of cells in there, but their actual dry mass is quite low. 80 million trees in Britain are at risk of death from ash dieback, a fungal disease that's gradually spreading across the country. But a new project funded by the Natural Environment Research Council may provide a glimmer of hope. Richard Buggs from Queen Mary University of London is leading a team that plans to decode the ash's entire genetic sequence to help produce a more resilient strain of the tree. Well, I'm with Richard and also Joe Clark, Forestry Research Manager for the Earth Trust near its centre at Abingdon in Oxfordshire. Uh, Joe, just set the scene for me here. We're, we're in the middle of a field and surrounded by woodland. Well, this is Paradise Wood, which is the research woodland of the Earth Trust. It was set up about 20 years ago, and it's um, the largest collection of genetic broadleaf trials in the country, dedicated to improving the quality of the timber of some of our most important timber trees. Now, to get to the location we're at right now, we've walked through some lovely woodland, and we've Mm. passed a plantation of ash, and there's, there's woodland all around us. But where we are right now... The trees are really quite small and and stubby. The reason they're so small is partly an environmental effect. Uh, We're in a bit of a frost pocket here, so it's not a great place for planting trees. But also a lot of the trees we're looking at is especially bread line of ash trees that have been crossed within themselves. So the material is much more homozygous and that actually has an impact on the growth. So that's another reason why they look so small. And when I say they look small, they're really just coming up to my my waist, that that sort of height. But Richard, these are of particular interest to you, these trees, despite their their small size. Yeah, so for me, to sequence a genome, it's really important that these are inbred trees. Because every tree has one genome copy from its mum, one from its dad, and they can be quite different. And so when I sequence a genome, it can be really hard to untangle those two. But in a plant that's actually uh, the product of a self-pollination, it has the same mum and dad, and so the two genomes are not very different. And so that will really help me as I sequence a genome to do the assembly of that genome in a way that's efficient and actually gives us really good results. And at the moment, Joe, I mentioned that, I mean, that alarming statistic of 80 million trees likely to be affected mm. by ash dieback. How important are ash trees? Well ash is one of our most important trees. It's the third most common tree and the second most widely planted broadleaf tree. It forms a very important part of many valued uh, ecosystems. Uh, A lot of our British biodiversity is, is dependent on not so much the ash tree itself but on the structure of a woodland, a broadleaf woodland that's created through different species composition. So ash is very important and it's a very important timber tree. Ash is quite elastic, it's quite good at absorbing impacts and it's used quite widely in things like flooring and door frames. Um, Morgan cars are still made from ash trees, it's widely used. So Richard, you're starting with the ash trees here, these these small ash trees, these, these young ash trees. What are you actually going to do? So I'll be collecting a sample here today. Uh, from a self-progeny of ash. I'll be taking that back to my lab at Queen Mary University of London and my PhD student, Yasmin Zorin, is going to extract the DNA from the bark of that specimen. 
uh, we'll be sending that DNA sample to Eurofins in Germany. And the data they're going to give back to me is a whole load of short reads from throughout the genome at random, covering the genome uh, 155 times over. And we have to put that all together using uh, high-performance computers to assemble the, the genome of ASH. And essentially what, you'll get a list of all the bases in the ASH DNA? Exactly. The ASH genome is 950 million bases long, so that's just under a third the size of the human genome. Sequencing a genome is a bit like taking aerial photos of an unexplored island. Just imagine there's an island in the Pacific that hasn't been explored. All we know is how big it is, and we want to know more about it. And so what we might do is send our planes over it, taking lots and lots of small aerial photos at random... And then we have to take those, those little aerial photos that we have, which in our case are reads of DNA, and put them all together in a big jigsaw puzzle to recreate on the computer the whole genome code of the ash tree. OK, you've got your secateurs in your hand. You're going to take a, a sample now. So you're actually going to chop okay, off a little yeah, bit yeah. of uh, so this tree here. taking a sample here. So... There we go. So yeah, you literally so. take that back and you've got to do all that, all that work this on it. This is the start of a huge uh, programme of research. So you have the sequence of, of DNA. How does that help you with looking at which trees are going to be resistant to the disease? The genes for resistance are not just going to pop out of the genome as soon as we sequence it. We're going to actually have to find them. And the way we do that is to look at lots of trees and find ones that are resistant and ones that are susceptible, and then genotype them. And so when you say genotype, look at the g- genetics of them, yeah. the sequence of them. So we won't sequence the whole genome of them, but we'll look at a subset of the genome using a system of markers, like, for, for example, there's a system called RAD markers, uh, that, that look at thousands of points across the genome, but not the whole of the genome, but enough of it for us to pick out the, the genes that are associated with resistance or susceptibility to ash dieback. The underlying genetics is is absolutely of paramount importance. Whether you're trying to produce robust populations to combat climate change or, in fact, a novel disease like Chalara, the genetics is what underpins all our research work to produce productive timber trees for the future. Richard, how long is this going to take? The sequencing of the genome should take less than a year. Well, we should be releasing a draft assembly of the ash genome very quickly. Technologies have moved on really fast in the last five years, and this is now quite a routine thing to do. And Joe, how soon do you expect to be able to use this information? Well, as soon as Richard gives us um, those individuals that are likely to be resistant, we have very good techniques for bulking up material. So ash grafts very, very easily. You can graft it onto a rootstock, and then you can be producing seed perhaps in five years' time. So while ash trees are are dying, you'll be hoping to breed resistant ash trees and almost start to catch up. Absolutely. Um, Just because most of the ash trees are dying, uh, hopefully we'll find one or two individuals. I mean, the public can even help here by identifying individuals and letting researchers know, and they can do that on the Future Trees Trust website, um, because those are the ones that will be resistant, and those are the ones that we would like Richard to be screening and saying, yes, they actually are resistant, and then we can breed from them. This is obviously a huge natural disaster for Britain and for our ash trees, but one of the really encouraging things that's come out of it is that 
It's shown us how much the public cares about woodlands. And also within the scientific community, I've seen a huge enthusiasm for lots of scientists to get involved with trying to combat this this problem. And different people with different research skills are coming together and saying, look, here's something that I can bring to the table. Let me work on this. And we're all looking to collaborate together to combat this as a scientific community within Britain. Richard Buggs and Joe Clark, thank you both very much. Uh, you can see pictures of the snow-covered trees here on our Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter. Just search for Planet Earth Online. This is the Planet Earth podcast. And as the helicopters from the nearby airbase whirl around above us, we'll go back to a subject we first reported on almost five years ago, using algae to produce biofuels and other useful products. As a clean, renewable source of energy, in theory, algae is great. Just like any plant, it grows with sunlight and carbon dioxide from air or even the emissions from power stations. Not only does algae take up carbon dioxide, some species produce useful quantities of lipids, which can be converted into biofuels. But scientists have hit a snag. How do you extract the useful chemicals? Well, it's one of the challenges being tackled by microbial ecologist Simon Thomas. I went to talk to him and see his photobioreactors at the Plymouth Marine Laboratory. We're in a constant temperature room at the moment, so this is actually set at 15 degrees C, and we are surrounded by bottles of algae growing gently in the light and also some larger volumes of algae. We have 10 litres of various algae, so we have a column, as you can see, which is bubbling air through it in front of a light source, and that's the very basic of what we do. Really, it looks like an oversized fluorescent tube full of this green liquid, and it's bubbling from the bottom up to the top, and that's a particular type of algae. Uh, the one in there is actually Dunanella salina. It's of commercial interest because it produces beta-carotene at certain stages of its life cycle. The bubbles are there to keep it moving, but they're also there to help gas exchange, so it gets oxygen out and CO2 in. And these you, you describe as photobioreactors. So, so what is a photobioreactor? It's the algal equivalent of a fermenter. So in a fermenter, Technology is very old, and it grows commercial-scale amounts of bacteria or yeast, typically. These are an attempt to take that technology onto algae, and it's to add a certain degree of control that's very hard to do in an open pond system. And ultimately, you're looking at at products from these, but you're looking at how to get those products out. We are, yes. For any future development of biodiesel from algae, one of the most important things to try and get the product out. But also for the other applications of algae, pharmaceutical uses, cosmetic uses, you still need to get the products out of the cell. Typically they're produced within a cell, and breaking the cell open is very difficult with algae. They're very resistant to distress. So we're trying to find some novel ways of breaking them apart. One of the ways we're looking at is using viruses that infect the algae, and they naturally break the cells apart. We're looking at novel mixing technologies which use things like beads impregnated with metals and enzymes from bacteria that would naturally break apart algae. So we're very much going back to nature in order to find a way of trying to solve this problem. It's quite tricky and it's taking an awful long time. An awful lot of people are looking at this at the moment. We have some success. If you imagine an individual microscopic algal cell, so what, that's a single plant cell, effectively. How much of that is oil and how much oil can you breed for it to, to, to produce? Normally you would say something like 10-15% would be oil but um, we've developed some strains of algae that produce up to 40% lipids 
And what we're trying to do is normally they would only accumulate these lipids late on in their life cycle. And we're trying to get them to actually produce this oil early on whilst they're actively growing. But of course there will always be a balance between growth and storage material. So we're trying to solve that particular conundrum. So you've got one of these columns just under, what, two metres high, a sort of oversized fluorescent tube full of algae. A sizable percentage of that is lipid, it's potentially oil, but getting it out is the challenge. Well, the scary thing, and one of these columns here there would only be about one gram of oil. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the, one of the challenges for the future is actually scaling up these systems to meet the massive demand there would be. But even in a, a very good system in 10 litres, you'd be lucky if you got more than two or three grams of oil. So you can see the problem. There is a lot of, there is a lot of cells in there, but their actual dry mass is quite low. And the amount of oil you would get out of it, reasonably small. So you need to come up with a very large solution. Or maybe find a, grow, a way to get them grow, to grow even denser, which is, again, something we're looking at. Now, if we go out of, of this room into the, uh, the main laboratory here... You have scaled this up, so this is a fairly big room, and at its centre is almost another room, which is full of these tubes that are running horizontally rather than vertically. Basically, you split the volume of the tube into a manifold, and the idea is trying to maximise the amount of light that the algae get, whilst minimising the amount of time they're spent before the oxygen's removed. So when oxygen gets too high for a photosynthetic organism, it becomes toxic. It's a balance between exposure to light and the amount of CO2 they take up and the amount of oxygen they produce. So this has been designed in collaboration with a big engineering firm and we worked out the formula based on our experimental design and we come up with this particular design. And this array, which if you imagine a whole load of hollow fluorescent tubes, if you like, running horizontally, but instead of light they've got these algae inside, is that continuously replenishing or is it the algae just sort of sitting there and doing its thing? The algae actually flow through the tubes and the idea is you get turbulent flow in the tubes so the algae actually go from the middle to the outside and it maximises their exposure to light and it also maximises their ability to get rid of the unwanted gases and take up CO2. So they've got this dual role, so they're taking up carbon dioxide, yep. so they're doing that and the idea is you want them to produce a product yeah. but you've got to get that product out. Absolutely. And that is, I would say, the biggest challenge with any sort of work with algae at the moment is trying to get the product out. Let's go a bit closer because next to uh, this array of tubes, you've got this very strange experiment on the uh, bench here. Uh, You've got a drill providing a motor which is attached to a, a, a series of drain pipes running around in a circuit. It's almost like a scale electric of, of drain pipes. That's a wonderful um, way of putting it, actually. This is actually a system that utilises braxial flow, and we designed it originally alongside the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to treat a tertiary effluent in Africa. But what we found is it provides incredibly good mixing. So what we're doing at the moment, we're running around various beads that are impregnated with lytic agents, agents that break apart algae. And the very good mixing we get, what we're trying to do is actually contact the algal cells with the beads as much as possible and break the cells apart. There are two tubes in the end, one inside the other, and the idea is that the density difference would cause the oil to run through the middle tube and effectively separate it from the algal biomass. And does it work? 
Yes, it, it definitely shows potential. What we found is it's very difficult to get one rotor design that both mixes and separates. So we're working with University College London at present who are providing us with a different impeller rotor design which will, we'd effectively have a two-stage system, one that mixed and one that separated. And yes, it does work. There's quite a lot, though, of challenges to overcome, aren't there, to, to make this technology viable, really. I mean, in theory, it works. In theory, you can grow algae, can take up carbon dioxide, it can produce oil. But, I mean, there's an awful lot of scaling to do. I would say we're quite a way off it at the moment. And at the moment, the numbers are quite scary. When you see the amount of land you would require to actually make a difference to the the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, for instance, or to provide any fossil fuels, at the moment we're a long way away from that, I think. Simon Thomas at the Plymouth Marine Laboratory, and we'll get some pictures of his rather exciting-looking lab for our Facebook page. We've moved to another part of the Earth Trust plantation here at Abingdon in Oxfordshire, and I'm looking down these long, straight rows of ash, and these trees are way bigger than the other ones we were at before. These are about sort of four metres or so in height, and I have to say, it is bitterly cold. I'm with Tamara Jones from Planet Earth Online, and we're both sort of stomping our feet to try to keep warm. I reckon it's at least two degrees below freezing, but also we're in wellies, so I just freeze. Anyway, let's let's get on with what we're here to do, which is talk about some of the stories on planet Earth online. And we're going to start with a. I mean, I find this quite a disturbing uh, story of using man traps to capture apes in Uganda. Yeah, it is quite upsetting research. Um, there's a researcher, a UK researcher, Dr. Matt McLennan. He's been finding that in Uganda, in a place called Bodonga Forest, that chimps are actually being caught in man traps. These mantraps are being um, used by farmers because the chimps are actually going for the cash crops like bananas and sugarcane. But these crops are being sown in areas between forests, so the chimps are kind of just you know making making the most of what they can find because their their habitat is being used, I suppose, for farming. So it's one of these conflicts between humans and wildlife which we're seeing more and more of yeah exactly because the chimps are losing their forest but of course the people need food so the the question is how on earth do you solve that situation these chimps can actually be saved but the farmers are scared of reporting that the chimps are being being caught in these man traps because they're illegal sometimes they do and obviously the chimps can be can be saved but then sometimes the chimps are just dying which is a massive problem Uh, more heartening news from scotland though with efforts to save the the Scottish wildcat. Yeah, well, some researchers um, from Oxford and uh, Lisbon University have found they've kind of discovered what sort of habitat the the wildcat prefers in Scotland. And previous sort of studies have thought that the wildcat likes actually to, to live in forest areas, I suppose, maybe for cover. But this research actually found that they also like woodland areas as well as the forested areas. And that's, they think, is partly driven by the, the what prey they can get. So on, in woodland areas, they, they can get um, rabbits, rodents like rats, voles, that sort of thing. And so what these researchers are saying is that those sort of areas need to be targeted for, for um, conservation because of wildcat numbers in Scotland are so low now that we really it, conservation is a real priority for them. And uh, finally, uh, evidence of cheesemaking in Europe. This is the first evidence of cheesemaking in Europe. Yeah, well, it's the earliest evidence of cheesemaking in Europe yet. And it looks like people are making, were making cheese in sort of the Poland era of Europe. 
around 7,000 years ago. And the way that researchers can tell this is because about in the 1980s, um, some archaeologists were excavating a site in Poland and they found these sieve-like vessels and they kind of wondered, well, maybe they are cheese-making vessels, but they couldn't actually prove it. And it's only now that they've actually been able to say, yes, they are cheesemaking, you know, they were used for cheesemaking. The way they know this is because they actually used some sophisticated analysis to actually find out what those fats were, because they could have been fats from meat, animal fat sort of thing, or maybe even um, beeswax, but they actually used isotopic analysis to discover that they were actually fats from milk. So cheese 7,000 years old in Europe. Yeah, pretty old smelly cheese, huh? Thanks, Tamara, for those stories at Planet Earth Online. And that's the Planet Earth podcast for the Natural Environment Research Council. I think the cold has made me slightly hysterical. I'm Richard Hollingham from the wilds of the Oxfordshire countryside. Thanks for listening.